0: Hello and welcome to our AIS podcast, Politics on Point. This special series of four podcast episodes will be covering a broad range of different topics relevant to the European Union as a Global actor. series in collaboration with the Konrad Adenauer Foundation here in Vienna. My name is Michael Sinconel. I'm the director of the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy and the host of today's episode on the topic of EU-ASEAN relations potentials for enhanced cooperation. In this episode, we will be discussing some of the most pressing issues in the ASEAN region and the wider Indo-Pacific. How to overcome them and opportunities also for enhanced EU-ASEAN cooperation in an increasingly fragile geopolitical atmosphere. I am delighted to welcome our expert speaker for today's session. We are joined today by Joy Singh Guo, the director and chief executive officer of ESEA's Yusuf Ishak Institute. The ESEA's Yusuf Ishak Institute is one of the leading research centers dedicated to the study of socio-political security and economic trends and developments in Southeastern Asia. And its wider geostrategic and economic development. The Institute is based in Singapore, and we are joined today by the director and CEO, uh, Mr. Choi, uh, who also holds the role of the head of the ASEAN Study Center at the Institute uh, since March 2020. In addition to his position, he also holds a number of board and advisory appointments on companies, charities and research establishments in Singapore. Mr. Joy, thank you very much for joining us today. My privilege altogether. together. We would like to start today's podcast with uh, the first question on uh, the current developments also related to the war in Ukraine. As evident by the voting behavior of the UN General Assembly, the ASEAN countries seem to have a somewhat divided point of view and standpoint on the war in Ukraine. Does the war create discord amongst ASEAN member states? And how does ASEAN's ambivalent stance relate to the EU's uh, comparably unified stance on the matter?
1: Michael, I think you are absolutely right that there are quite a wide range of responses in from Southeast Asian countries to the war in Ukraine. So they range from Singapore that imposed uh, unilateral sanctions. Uh, and perhaps also in the same end is Cambodia who co-sponsored the UN resolution against Russia. And then on the other end of the spectrum you have uh, Laos and Vietnam abstain from most of the UN resolutions. And I would like to explain that there are a mixture of reasons for the differing responses, and it is uh, very much connected to divergent national interests and histories. So on Singapore's part, I think uh, it can be understood that Singapore finds the principle of sovereignty and territorial integrity uh, to be very important. Uh, related to its own very small geographical size and also its rather tumultuous history uh, before its independence. Uh, Cambodia has its own history of having been invaded, and perhaps uh, this time around it took a more forward position because it was chairing ASEAN uh, in the year in which uh, they had to make this stand. Indonesia was chairing G20, so it had to maintain some kind of a neutrality in order to fulfill its responsibilities, uh, in order to uh, also have the the kind of uh, bandwidth to engage with both sides who are also uh, involved in G20. And we should also understand that on Vietnam's uh, point of view, uh, their entire military uh, armament um you know stock uh, inventory actually is almost entirely dependent on russian sales and of course their follow-up support um vietnam and laos also have had very strong historical links to moscow and i think this is uh, not something they uh, could ditch overnight having said that i would like to say also that uh, the war did not really create significant discord between ASEAN states because it was not really deemed as an existential issue by countries here. Um, Hence, most initial ASEAN statements for that reason became very bland, and I'm sure it is very disappointing to people who stood strongly against the invasion, including some ASEAN countries who were more forward-leaning. But while uh, the fact of the war being rather distant played a a big part in the earlier responses, I think this became less so when the impact of the things like the high energy prices, high food prices and also high fertilizer prices began to actually come home to Southeast Asia around the second half of 2022. So, by the time uh, the uh, EU-ASEAN command Summit came about in December 2022, I think that's when uh, there was, uh, in that sense, I think uh, finally a consensus to to name Russia and to also um, make a statement against its aggression outright.
0: Probably as a very small follow-up question to this matter, would you dare to give our listeners a little bit of a outlook, a trend, how this might change in the next six to 12 months. We're recording this episode in June. Um, if we take a look at the situation towards the end of the year, end of 2023, will that change? Do you, do you think there might be an impact or will the stands of the ASEAN countries remain the same?
1: I think mostly they will remain around the same. Uh, as as we all know, although uh, the high energy and food prices were a problem, they they kind of went away, and maybe right at this point in time, it's not so serious. Uh, having said that, we don't know what's going to happen over the next six months. It could come back again. <laughs> then we don't know whether uh, that becomes uh, there's as greater uh, you know sort of interest in trying to. Bring about some kind of resolution that then uh, you know makes all these collateral problems easier to manage um, but I think the fundamental interests remain and the fact that there is a divergence between uh, ASEAN's stance and that of the EU um, I think will, will remain uh, somewhat uh, different um, because I think for the EU this is really very some this is something that's really very existential very proximate and also very emotionally linked to uh, very recent experiences by some uh, European countries. Um, So the stakes are very high, and when the stakes are so high, they tend to focus one's attention very much. And uh, I think the level of risk aversion goes much higher. This is uh, not the case for most ASEAN countries. um, And even if those problems were to come back, there are a number of other factors uh, and perhaps there are also a number of other narratives that actually have a resonance and they are considered together with, uh, you know, the uh, the sense of what's um, happening in, in Europe, uh, how that would play against these other factors. So I think this would remain fundamentally the, cha- the same even going forward six months.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Moving from the... European geopolitical sphere and the war in Ukraine to more the ASEAN region. Our next question would concern in particular uh, the current ASEAN chair, Indonesia. Indonesia has uh, voted to take a stronger stance against the military junta in Myanmar. Uh, However, with no consensus amongst the ASEAN member states, the scope of action remains rather limited. So my question would be, how can ASEAN as a whole, or Indonesia in specific, address the Myanmar issue, and is there the opportunity that the European Union can also take a stronger position as a partner in doing that?
1: Yeah, the, I think the uh, perhaps it's good to remember that the 2021 uh, military coup in Myanmar Uh, It is a new development, but it didn't really come out of the blue. Uh, The military in Myanmar has played a very strong and important institutional and political role in Myanmar since its independence uh, way back uh, in 1948. So the 2021 coup, um, to put it uh, kind of more objectively, uh, is simply the latest in a series of developments that have troubled the country for a long time. And I think that uh, with that backdrop, I think the uh, perhaps the countries in the region understand that this is not a problem that's going to be solved in a very short time and will probably not be resolved in the kind of complete and total manner that perhaps one would like. Uh, So you must not forget that even uh, Aung San Suu Kyi herself uh, first became prominent uh, by being the daughter of an important national military figure. So so the military has long history in Myanmar being involved in national affairs, and uh, while some would like them to exit the scene, it is not so easily achieved and may also have consequences that perhaps uh, we do not fully understand. So ASEAN, uh, I think, it's is mindful of this. Uh, ASEAN played an important role in the past to get Myanmar to the kind of political and economic state that it was in just prior to the coup. And therefore, I think it has a, a strong commitment and also a vested interest in trying to get it out of the mess that it is in now. Um, However, as you have pointed out, I think there are divergent interests among different ASEAN member states and getting a consensus for new policy directions uh, is not going to be easy. Such differences that exist are quite natural in the sense that uh, there are those which have common borders with Myanmar and they would feel the uh, security and other perhaps economic concerns more acutely than those who are a bit further away.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, So the five-point consensus which was pulled together three months after the coup actually took place um, still represents I would say the common plan that all uh, ASEAN member states agreed to um, and it, that included actually the the SAC, the the Myanmar military, who uh, were participating in that meeting. Although immediately after the meeting, uh, the SAC uh, quite quickly disavowed that they had agreed to the five uh, point consensus, and have consistently resisted trying to bring it back. I think equally importantly. Um, the parties that are in the opposition against the military have also rejected the five-point consensus. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have resisted things like um, the channeling of uh, humanitarian aid through the the military areas and through the military's uh, uh, um, um, help. And they have also resisted starting a dialogue with the military Uh, which would have been one part of of the five-point consensus as well. So 2023 will be a critical year um, for ASEAN to try and regain some momentum on the Myanmar crisis. We are about halfway through 2023 already. Uh, There have been and there still remain high hopes for Indonesia uh, to make some kind of breakthrough as the chair. It has been, as you pointed out, one of the groupings most vocal countries on the coup and its aftermath. It was the one that actually pushed for the first ASEAN leaders meeting, the special ASEAN leaders meeting that uh, actually came out with a five point consensus in April that year. Um, So upon assuming its chairmanship this year, I think uh, Indonesia has taken a proactive as well as an energetic role uh, in trying to move things on Myanmar. They've had many engagements with a wide range of different stakeholders inside Myanmar, as well as outside Myanmar, including uh, engaging with uh, parties like the EU, India, Japan, and also the US, as well as uh, the UN uh, Special Envoy. Mm-hmm. So it is hoping to uh, have a coordinated approach working with all these stakeholders. Um, the other significant thing I think that uh, Indonesia has done is that it has set up an office of the special envoy. Uh, you know, the the ASEAN chair has always appointed a special envoy, but they have not had... Uh, an office, uh, you know, a specific office um, uh, assigned to do just the work uh, related to Myanmar. Indonesia has changed this, and they have actually put a, a veteran diplomat uh, to help the special envoy, who is uh, usually the foreign minister. And with these uh, additional resources, I think that Indonesia is giving it a serious go. It is also been uh, stated. I think uh, Indonesia said they will try. They will have also tried to bring in uh, military or ex-military figures from their mm-hmm. own side to try and help bridge the gap with the uh, SAC. Mm-hmm. So I think this this is uh, the the kind of push that Indonesia is trying to uh, bring together uh, during this year. However, as we've said, uh, it's half a year gone and uh, there's uh, quite a lot of activity, but we haven't really seen uh, any breakthroughs. So Mm -hmm. if I may go to the part about how can the EU help? um, Clearly, there's no silver bullet. Uh, It is a very difficult situation. the, what is helpful is for uh, the EU and ASEAN to coordinate on the subject um, because it can be possible that uh, may, there may be uh, some activity that may be uh, aware uh, that may end up being at, at cross purposes. Uh, so it's good that both sides uh, uh, try to avoid this. So Indonesia is likely to continue taking, I think, a low-key Diplomatic approach, rather than high profile one. Um, they will speak to the media, but not all the time and not uh, not every. Certainly not after every meeting. I think in terms of tone, this will be a bit at odds with the EU's approach and the EU's style. Um, but I think it's always a strength to be trying different approaches. And if they are coordinated, then this becomes a strength rather than a weakness. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think it's important for the EU to understand the ASEAN approach uh, under Indonesia's leadership, and perhaps also exercise a bit more patience um, to to let uh, their approach work while also uh, continuing with their own approach on a coordinated way. Ultimately, I think both sides want the same outcome, which is to bring... uh, you know, uh, halt to the violence and to deliver humanitarian aid to all the people who are in need of it. And eventually, uh, hopefully not too long, uh, return to an administration that has some popular support from Myanmar people, which
0: is clearly not the case right now. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely important to remember that the EU and ASEAN has common interests in solving uh, this issue. and. Uh, probably also the EU should live up more to its potential to also be an an honest partner in doing so, yeah. Um, We're coming also to another question, to another topic that concerns the ASEAN region and also the EU-ASEAN relations. Um, The EU, as we know, has emphasized the promotion of democracy, the promotion of human rights as part- of its Indo-Pacific strategy. And regarding, upcom- regarding the upcoming general elections in Thailand and in Cambodia this year, um, there is some concern about the freeness and the fairness of these elections in Europe. My question would be, how can the EU's commitment to democracy and the ASEAN's uh, principles of non-interference can be reconciled? And against this background, how could the elections in Cambodia and in Thailand impact the EU-Asean relations?
1: Well, I think while there was some skepticism um, about the, the Thai general elections, uh, now that it is uh, over, I do believe that most uh, observers agree that it was carried out uh, freely Uh, albeit uh, within the boundaries of the existing uh, constitution, which is, uh, um, you know, a recent uh, uh, constitution. I think the actual election results also sort of speak for themselves because the incumbent parties um, who are uh, related to the, I would say, the long, uh, long, the more conservative establishment uh, as well as their leaders, they were actually rejected by the majority of voters. So so obviously, um, there was if there's any interference with the, the votes, it didn't deliver the kind of uh, uh, results that the incumbent liked. However, uh, the game is not entirely over. Mm-hmm. Because uh, a new prime minister has to be selected by the combined houses of parliament, and that includes a significant number of non-elected senators. Um, And so the popular choice from the elections may not necessarily prevail under that system. Uh, So I think this is still very much in play. And so it continues to be something that the election commission in Thailand is still trying to work out and also the various senators are trying to uh, i guess uh, work out their their positions how they would vote when that uh combined uh, session is convened um but having said that i i, I must say that um yeah the, yeah the elections themselves were were obviously run fairly well and i don't think they were complaints that it was not a free and a fair election. So the Cambodian elections will be even more controversial uh, because the most prominent opposition party and some opposition figures were disqualified from contesting in the election. Uh, this development, I think, uh, the EU has uh, spoken out against. Uh, similarly, also on the part of the US, while uh, ASEAN has not uh, been able to issue any statement on this and does not intend to. Um, There are really vast differences between the EU and ASEAN. Uh, Perhaps uh, these differences are not so well understood by the general public, so let me just uh, lay out a few of them. So, Firstly, I think Europe is far more homogeneous than Southeast Asia in both uh, ethnic, religious terms as well as in economic development terms. So secondly, uh, there are institutional differences between the EU and ASEAN, with the EU being a supranational, supranational uh, organization with powers to overrule some its members in some areas, whereas ASEAN is actually an intergovernment association of sovereign countries. Uh, thirdly, there, there are already a diverse group of political systems in ASEAN today, ranging from democracies, Uh, to absolute monarchies, to uh, governments run by uh, communist parties. So these systems are already divergent today, uh, and uh, they uh, form part of the reality of ASEAN. Uh, So any kind of institutional commitment to a prescribed form of government like democracy uh, is just not possible uh, for ASEAN to think about or to talk about, much less to practice. Um, And non-interference in domestic political affairs of members, between members, is actually a necessary unifier uh, for the ASEAN organization from the very beginning. However, I think that the Myanmar issue has shown that even this non-interference principle has its limits. And uh, what has been done, I think we are uh, all aware of. Um, ASEAN has uh, not allowed the military government from Myanmar to attend the ASEAN summit or its foreign ministers' meetings since last year. So, this is uh, uh, something that ASEAN is beginning to do despite its non interference principle. Mm-hmm. Will this have an impact on ASEAN EU relations? I think it depends on uh whether um the EU um wants to take a position uh against an individual country uh, that affects that entire relationship with ASEAN as a grouping. Um I think most ASEAN countries would be hoping that that unhappiness with uh, developments in one country will not become multilateralized in that sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Um, We will move now again from the regional perspective to the more global sphere for our last topic and last question. ASEAN as well as its member states have long pursued the strategy for non-alignment, especially vis-a-vis the increasing uh, senior U.S. rivalry, the rivalry between the U.S. and China. How does ASEAN now view the EU in this context and what role could or should the EU play vis-a-vis this increasing rivalry?
1: Okay, Um, I think like
0: other countries,
1: ASEAN member states have been looking to do what is in their own interests in the midst of this uh, global rivalry and global competition. It doesn't want to be a proxy for anyone. And uh, in a kind of a, in a summary, I would think that uh, ASEAN countries are really looking for three things um, that are in their own interest. Firstly, I think they want to try to preserve peace and stability in the region. Uh, Southeast Asia has been a region of war and instability until as late as the nineteen late 1970s. Um, And it was only after that, less than uh, 50 years ago, that uh, the region has experienced peace and could focus on economic growth. Secondly, I think that the region would like to pursue economic growth, as it has been able to do the last 40 plus years. Uh, They want to be able to trade. They want to be able to make investment deals with all interested parties without restriction rather than to have to deal only with some. Uh, and this is uh, consistent from the past too, because, for example, uh, the Japanese <clears throat> and the Americans are both enemies, were both enemies in the past to some countries in ASEAN, uh, but they were welcomed back. So it is uh, similarly without this kind of, a, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, restriction that uh, countries have been trying to pursue economic growth uh, in Southeast Asia. Thirdly, I think they would like to have a measure of agency or control over regional developments rather than to have to fit into anyone else's agenda. And uh, often people would refer to this uh, as a form of ASEAN centrality um so i think that's that's what's behind it is that uh, the region wants to have its own uh, say over how the region would be governed so in the state of southeast asia survey which my uh, aSEAN Studies center uh, does um of all 10 uh, regional countries uh, opinion makers uh, they Conclusion uh, from that study shows that uh, the EU is the top choice, actually, of uh, third party for hedging against the uncertainties between the U.S. and China in their rivalry. Uh, This was the choice of about 43% of the voters, of the respondents uh, in ASEAN. Japan is second, uh, but Mm -hmm. quite a long way behind at 27%. So not challenging uh, the EU's uh, positioning in in that sense. And then uh, further back, you get India and Australia, who are only at 10 or 11 percent. So like uh, ASEAN, I believe that uh, the EU's interest is not totally aligned with the US in its relationship with China. It is aligned in many ways, but it's not totally aligned. somewhat that we're therefore in a position similar position to, to ASEAN. And there's great therefore greater room for understanding and cooperation in that respect, I think, between the two regions. So EU has got room to play. Um, the same survey also shows that uh, it is actually Japan that is the most trusted major power of ASEAN countries in terms of doing the right thing. So uh, Japan was trusted by 55% of uh, the respondents to our survey. But Europe is not far behind at 51%. So it's it's, uh, also fairly well trusted. Majority uh, do trust Europe. Um, And the reason uh, that that's the case is because uh, the respondents believe that the EU is committed to human rights, to climate action, to international law. So there is a lot of common ground between uh, uh, what the EU believes and what the the region believes in, and uh, perhaps it is only the style of engagement and diplomacy that may need to be somewhat adapted. Um, There is, however, I must also blank out from the survey that uh, some scepticism about Europe's uh, political will and capacity, uh, because it is seen as preoccupied with uh, internal affairs. Um, So it it, it remains to be noted that I think that uh, Europe has taken a stronger role, taken on a stronger role uh, recently in the region. Um, And uh, Joseph Borrell has spoken at the Shangri-La Dialogue, I think uh, just recently, a week plus ago. So this is a uh, good development that Europe is uh, trying to dispel this scepticism of its uh, capacity and and political will to be involved. What kind of role can the EU play? I think that um, there is uh, a role security-wise. I think that it can complement the US as an external player in upholding international law and freedom of navigation and overflight in the region. But the main uh, part of uh, Europe's continued commitment I think should come on the economic side. It's already a big player. It should continue to build upon its investments and integration of the region. Um, of course, the big strategic move is uh, ASEAN EU FTA. Uh, but uh, I understand that the EU is still working on single country FTAs for the time being, um, because it's already negotiating those uh, single country FTAs. Um, but I hope. Uh, I think the region will hope that it it's probably is not too long uh, before it can go to a region-to-region FTA. Um, perhaps the final area I would just flag out is that the EU can play a big role in the energy transition for the region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is also something where it has uh, experience and also technologies that are salient to the challenges of the ASEAN countries.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Choi, for pointing out that uh, very broad scope of different potential cooperation uh, in the EU-ASEAN relations. I think that uh, based on the acknowledgement and emphasis that you have made that the EU has already taken a stronger stance towards the region, this can even be enhanced in the future also based on the potentials, based on the topics that we have pointed out today during this podcast episode. I would like to thank you, Mr. Choi, uh, Director and CEO of the um, ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute based in Singapore for your time and for sharing your profound expertise on the matter with us. This has been a special AIS Politics on Point podcast on the topic of EU-Asean relations potentials for enhanced cooperation that has been conducted in cooperation with the Konrad Adenauer Foundation here in Vienna. My name is Michael Sinkernel and I've been your host today. Thank you very much for listening and stay tuned.